Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. My name's Ellie Clement and I'm Library Academic Support Team Manager in the Library. Part of my role is um, supporting open access within Leeds Beckett University. Today I've got with me Amy Campbell. Hi, I'm a Research Services Advisor, so my role is to learn about, understand and communicate the various complexities of open access. And two academics, we've got Christopher Till. Hi, I'm a senior lecturer in sociology <clears throat> in the School of Social Sciences. And Sophia Person. Hi, my name is uh, Dr Sophia Person and I am a senior lecturer within the criminology group. I'm a psychologist, so I teach on the criminology with psychology course. As academics, would you like to just give us a little bit of a, a little bit of a potted history about your understanding and engagement with open access so far? Yeah, absolutely. So my background, I used to work at ManMet. So my background in open science really is from there, where I was part of forming the open science working group at MMU. So that's the work I took with me, really, when I came to Leeds Beckett about three years ago now, or two years ago now. Time flies. <laughs> um, and here at Leeds Beckett, I started up an open science working group as well. And this has now been formalised into an initiative within SISEN, which means that it's kind of formalised. Um, and I've been running seminars and disseminating resources on open science. And I guess I've become a little bit of a contact person through this if people have queries about open science, which I'm quite happy about because I like open science. I'm also the section editor for the methods and open practices section for the social and personality psychology compass as well. Fantastic. And Chris, what's your background with open access? Uh, so I'm nowhere near as much of an expert or, uh, in this as, as Sophia is at all, but um, I'm more here, I suppose, as a, a general kind of academic who is engaged with, with open access, uh, as many of us are, which is in the sense that, um, I suppose, just for anyone who's, who's not too familiar with this, as an academic who's involved in research and, public, and, and publication, I have to be making my work open access as much as possible, especially when that's funded. And I'm often finding open access materials, which is useful for me as well in my research and teaching. Um, so I'm learning a lot all the time, especially probably today as much as any other day. Well, it's great to have you both with us. Thanks very much. Amy, do you want to give us a quick brief overview of the history of open access? Yeah, open access has become one of the ubiquitous terms within academia, but it's probably worth just explaining exactly what it is for anyone who doesn't know. So what we mean by open access research is that it's free to read on the internet by anyone in academia, but also just the general public, anyone who has any interest in that subject matter, so that they can learn from it, build on it, share it, all that sort of stuff, without any financial or technical barriers, apart from having an internet connection. And the general philosophy is that publicly funded research should be publicly available. And the kind of phrase of open access started around 2001, and the general idea of it was consolidated over those next few years, with the UK's Wellcome Trust being an early adopter and supporter. And from about 2005, Research Councils UK began to release position statements, which led to um, specific policies from them and also from the REF. And so we find ourselves where we are now which Ellie might begin to explain at some point. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. So it kind of started off as being a good thing to make those outputs more open. Was that how you first came across it, Sophia? I mean, I think from an yeah from an open science perspective, really, I guess the idea is that science should be open, and that includes science findings. So within this, really, like research outputs and all aspects of the research should be open. With my open science work, I'm also involved in making open like data sets and encouraging people to make all aspects of the research open. But yeah, that certainly includes making the published research paper available as well for people to read. So I think it's a very fundamental part of, of open science as a movement. Excellent. And there are also some benefits for academics in terms of making your research available open access in that it's more visibly out there, which means that more people can read it, which means that hopefully more people will read it and incorporate it into the research that they build on from the research that you've been doing. Chris, have you used open access research in your teaching? Yeah, I, I regularly do, really. And sometimes that's because perhaps the particular article or, or piece of research that I want to talk to students about, we don't have access to through, through the university, through, through our journal subscriptions or whatever, uh, or that we don't have that particular book, perhaps. And uh, some academics will be putting, you know, book chapters that we'll talk about maybe the differences between those later. And sometimes that's because actually it's been research which is, it has inherently been kind of open in, in the way it's been published, uh, you know, whether that's through kind of forums such as uh, websites like The Conversation or Discover Society, which is another kind of outlet specifically around the social sciences for publishing more kind of general public uh, lay kind of uh, targeted uh, versions of uh, of research findings. I find it really useful for, for both of those reasons, just because it's often easier to get up hold of. But I think coming back to what Ellie was saying, it's, it's often actually easier to find as well, because when things are open access. I'm not sure on the technicals of this, but they seem to uh, get higher up on Google search results mm -hmm. or, you know, whether that's through general Google or Google Scholar or or, or other means. Um, and that's probably because more people are linking to it. I think that that's broadly how it functions. And so they, they just seem to get more visibility in, in general. I find it extremely useful. And another thing we'll probably come back to later is kind of how that relates to kind of broader representation of different kinds of academics as well. Yeah, certainly. So we've we've kind of all agreed that open access is is quite a quite a positive thing. But there are also several reasons why we have to comply and reasons that we have to do it. And Amy mentioned the research excellence framework earlier on. But there's also a recently published policy by the United Kingdom Research and Innovation uh, (UKRI). And also there's been an international initiative called Plan S, which has been about making as much research open as possible. And many research funders have signed up to that so increasingly there it there seems to be a bit of a regulatory environment that's mandating that that open access publication what sorts of things have we done amy within leeds beckett university to enable our academics to comply with all of those policies and mandates well principally we have systems such as symplectic to um, collate our research and the repository um, to help make that visible and you know we try and communicate these policies as clearly as possible using our website and um, training and different things even like this podcast is hopefully going to raise awareness um, amongst the university of what staff need to do but the policies are complex and they do change such as this new UKRI policy they just tweak around the edges and therefore it's really important for us to find 
new and clear ways of communicating these changes. Quite often up until now it's been possible to publish things under the green open access route which generally involves uh, embargo period before things are made available. Under the new UKRI policy that isn't how things are going to be made available and it's possible that for the next ref that might be uh, how things have to be made available under route one or the gold open access immediately which means that an APC would have to be paid. Amy have we got any structures within Leeds Beckett University that can help academics to find out how they can manage to find funding for APCs for example? Yeah we do so we've signed up for various transitional deals which we'll probably explain a little bit more about later But with these deals, which are nationally organised through JISC, they're not just a Leeds Beckett only deal, we can get free APCs included within those deals. Those deals are advertised on our website and we try and specify exactly what is included and what's not included in, in those deals. And also where they close early, we try and make sure that's also advertised so that people don't apply for something which doesn't exist any longer. So in, in that case, sorry, could I just ask it? In that case, are those payments sort of rolled in, into the, the journal subscriptions? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's how it works. So we continue to pay sometimes a substantial amount of money, but that allows us access to all or some of a publisher's journals. And then it also includes a certain number of APCs bundled into that. Right. However, it's, it's true to say that we, ha- we aren't able to sign up to every single publisher's transitional deal so not every journal is open to people to publish in with these bundled in APCs so the list of titles as Amy said or the list of publishers is available on the library website but before you start thinking about where you're wanting to uh, publish your research it's a good idea to make sure that there's a publication outlet that you've got access to. As academics there's an issue there isn't there about where you're publishing your research and how does that, how does that feel as a as an academic thinking right well I can't just think of this is the journal that I want to publish this in I have to go through an additional step this is the journal I want to publish in but can I afford to? I mean I think for me personally it's never really something I've thought about which is probably mm. bad um, it's always been a positive surprise since starting at Leeds Beckett getting an offer of publishing open access mm. Um, That was the first for me. I think the last three papers I've published since I started have all been open access, which has been great. Mm. Uh, Something I've been bragging about to people. So it's been a great social thing as well. It's given me a lot of open science cred. So I think it's not really a consideration I've had, to be honest, but maybe that's a consideration people should have. But then, yeah, how do you negotiate if there is a particular journal you really want to publish in and it's perhaps prestigious as well to Mm. publish in that journal, but they may not have an open access route available for us? Because exactly. I think with the with the open science work, there's also this consideration of the kind of publish or perish academia culture and then where you publish also factors into that a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is why these deals are called uh, transitional deals because they're, they're designed to transition us towards um, open access across the piece, which was something that was sparked by discussions around um, Plan S and the, and, the, and the ideal from Plan S. I think uh, my f- sort of philosophical feeling, never mind the real life on the ground thing at the moment because we've just got to make them work, but my philosophical feeling is that they don't quite go far enough because we are still having to make make decisions about where you publish and it stops being just on the basis 
basis of the academic validity of the argument you're making in your paper and it starts to be on the basis of whether you can afford to publish it in that outlet or not and I think that moves away from the kind of philosophical ideal of open access that we started talking about right at the beginning about making the outputs of your science available to people and open and accessible. Yeah I, I, I agree and I think when I first sort of heard about several years ago the, the concept of open access and one of the reasons why I found it exciting was not just things you know we talked about before it's very easy for me and anyone else to get hold of stuff but also there seemed a possibility it might kind of weaken the stranglehold of several very powerful very rich publishing uh, houses who have remained in some cases very rich and very powerful for <laughs> a few hundred years actually and that's not quite happened yet <laughs> for some of these reasons I mean, and so I think the, the, the notion of being transitional is is kind of interesting and I think the, the issue of prestige that Sophia mentioned of, of course is, is important and of course we want to kind of publish in usually in prestigious uh, outlets and, and part of that is for what we talk about in academia is impact. It's presumed that you, your research has more impact if it's in certain kind of publications. It's also for kind of reasons of status. It kind of looks good either to your peers or to someone who might want to offer you a job or a promotion in the future. And I think all these issues are kind of intertwined. Hopefully open access actually, it could even have broader impacts on how those things are seen. Maybe if we if we don't necessarily focus so much in the future on those kinds of issues of status, because I think obviously open access is very much related to the broader impact that just the internet has had on, on our society and our, and our kind of culture that actually, in order to get something out into public, we don't need to go to someone who has some expensive heavy equipment to to print it and to and to distribute it. it you know, it's very easy to do that. So what is the role of publishers um, when I, I can set up a free blog in sort of two minutes? I think you raise an interesting point there, Chris, because it's not just about saying the system needs to change. I think the question is, we're not academics, as you say, going to start perhaps looking beyond the prestige you get from publishing in a good journal. And I think while there are certainly constraints, organisational constraints to where you publish, it's also self-imposed to a certain extent that, as you say, Chris, you want to publish in these good journals. And there are some really interesting, you know, open access initiatives going on, like Collabra, for instance, in psychology, a completely open access journal. Um, and they also do some pretty interesting stuff around peer review um, and, and the kind of whole academic process. But then if those initiatives are to survive, then obviously academics need to support it by sending their high quality research there instead to these older publishing houses. And it's easier for established academics to do that than it is for the early career researcher who really feels that they need to kind of make their mark on the research landscape in some ways. Leeds Beckett University is a modern, high-quality university transforming lives through professional, academic and applied learning and adding to the social, economic and cultural life of our city and region. We educate the bright minds that will help solve the problems of tomorrow. We collaborate with thousands of regional, national and international businesses to ensure our research and courses are contemporary, rich and relevant to meet the needs of our students and their present and future employers. Our campuses house exceptional teaching, research and learning environments which provide our students with access to state-of-the-art facilities. Across a range of disciplines, our researchers are striving to improve quality of life, equality and the environment around us. We are dedicated to making a difference. To find out more about Leeds Beckett University, our courses and our community of staff, students and alumni, 
please visit leedsbeckett.ac.uk. Within open science more generally, there is an ongoing discussion about how much of the burden can fall on early careers researchers. They tend to be the ones that are most excited about open science, at least traditionally, but they are perhaps also the ones that have the most to lose. So there is a discussion, I think, to be had about how much of the emotional and academic labour can be done by early careers researchers when really it's perhaps the more senior people that need to take the lead because they can afford to. Those of us who have been in academia a little bit of time, we didn't used to pay kind of article processing Mm. charges. And this was kind of before the kind of open access really found its feet, I think. And now that you do, actually... I remember when I first kind of got into academia, if someone was asking you for money to publish your work, it probably was an indicator that it was maybe predatory or kind of vanity publishing or something like that, which of course isn't the case, you know, if it's a Sage journal or it's a Routledge publication or something like that. And I think particularly maybe for career academics, there might be a bit of confusion over what that means or or even over identifying that. And yeah, I wonder if there's ways that we can, things that we can do to help each other to, to, to to, to make those kinds of distinctions. I think that's a fair point, actually, Chris. And I've there's been discussions about this within kind of open science or also between myself and colleagues at other institutions that it's not always so easy for inexperienced academics to know what's predatory and what's not predatory. And I think throwing in money in the mixture, like you say, kind of blurs the line and it's increasingly difficult for people to tell. And it might seem if you're a bit more of an experienced researcher, it may seem pretty straightforward to figure out when something is a scam and something isn't a scam. But I don't think it is quite so straightforward for many people. And I think there needs to be, yeah, perhaps a discussion and more of a guide for people to identify what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. Because otherwise, it's just going to put people off the whole concept, I think, of trying to go down publishing routes that are open access if there is a cost involved. If publishing becomes the preserve of people who've got access to money, are we in danger of perpetuating global inequalities in terms of publishing practices and that kind of thing? Yeah, I I think so. Again, I'm not an expert on this. My understanding is article processing charges do tend to be kind of stratified or often stratified, uh, you know, differently to different kind of uh, different areas of the globe are kind of categorised in in different kind of income levels and therefore have to pay different fees. But I think there is still a significant um, amount of of kind of prejudice within within the academic world and within the publishing world, and um, certainly generally more wealthy institutions, which tend to be in wealthier parts of the world, it's certainly easier for them to pay the, the fees, even if they are stratified. I think there'll, there'll be more generally more research intensive universities and ones who have got more assets open to them. Again, related to that prestige issue, the, the most prestigious journals in most disciplines um, that I'm aware of tend to be based in Europe, America, Australia, those kinds of places. And again, that's due to a lot of those kind of historical historical factors we mentioned. Again, related to prestige, you know, it, it's harder for an academic from a kind of a wealthier or a less wealthy country to justify maybe publishing in, in, a, in one of those purportedly less prestigious journals, article kind of processing charges uh, aside. And so it is tricky, and that means that certain kinds of voices and certain kinds of issues um, can get sidelined. Uh, and I know in terms of my own research and in terms of teaching, it can often be more challenging to find and access work by scholars who are maybe kind of non-white or outside of kind of the white majority world, or discussing those kinds of issues from, from, those, from those parts of the world. And, and again, I think that that is an issue which sort of open access um, research as a kind of broader philosophy could and, and, and should be tackling. 
Uh, but again, it, I think it's about challenging those those academic hierarchies. Absolutely. So we've spent quite a while, to, or so far we've mainly talked about uh, open access when it comes to journals. Is there much of an open access movement in terms of books and e-books, Amy? And is there, are there any things that we ought to be aware of on the, on the horizon? Yeah, there's a, been a very interesting development in the UKRI policy around um, monographs. Um, what they're asking for is that monographs, like whole books and chapters, to be published um, open access within 12 months of publication. So this means that green open access is an option. In reality, we know that next to no publishers, especially traditional large publishers, will allow that. So really that's pushing us towards more of a gold open access route. And looking at the book processing charges, they are 10, 11,000 pounds per book. So quite astronomical amounts of money to be honest and also this is a completely new process for most authors and it raises all sorts of complexities for research officers like you and I Ellie about how is this going to work in practice and how are we going to communicate this so I don't know if Sophia and Chris are aware of this likely change and and how scared they feel about it. (laughs) I, mean, I think that that is a that, that is a huge issue, and um, certainly in my discipline in sociology, and that's true of I think uh, much of the social sciences, humanities. Writing monographs is is a big kind of status symbol, and it's certainly something that, that uh, many people are aiming for. In some cases, it might be a requirement of of getting tenure and things like that. I think such large charges like that could be a problem. Um, again, because it could be quite difficult for departments or universities to pay those kinds of fees and certainly to pay it multiple times. And again, the, there could be kind of inequalities there around, you know, who, who gets access to those big kind of payouts? Are they more likely to go to senior professors rather than early kind of career researchers? Or does that need to be thought about? And uh, and again, I think that that kind of influence of those traditional publishers is an issue. You know, I'm aware of publishers uh, and it's the uh, University of Westminster, I think, um, press who do publish all of their all of their books. I think um, uh, open access uh, with an option for print on demand and um, that kind of thing. They're not deemed to be as kind of high status as as some of the the more traditional publishers, uh, but they're doing really great work and publishing really great stuff in fields that I'm interested in. And that does seem like an exciting and an interesting uh, kind of way forward. But again, because so again, I think so much of what it means to publish a monograph is is about the kind of the prestige and the status so that again that's something that need, probably needs to be needs to be tackled absolutely i mean i think in terms of in just pure practical terms on that we have already started having some conversations with the research funding advisors in research and enterprise around making sure that if you're putting a bid into one of the research councils so your research would be under the UKRI policy as it currently is that you're starting to think about building the book processing charges into the funding bid that you're that you're putting forward but it's another consideration at the point where you're searching for funding for your research isn't it to have to do that yeah I think that's that's it and also certainly in my field a lot of the kind of the the very important monographs that are written are not necessarily directly derived from research that's been funded they're often kind of more theoretical or they're maybe more more of a synthesis of broader research and it's it's maybe a bit tricky as to where the money might come from for those academia tends to be obviously 
I think slightly behind other areas. And you know, I know that there's, there's certain kind of novelists who's going to publish their book chapter by chapter on Substack uh, for mm-hmm. like a small kind of a subscription fee. You know, we do wonder about how those kinds of initiatives could filter through in some fashion to you know essentially micropayments uh, to academia. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, and and like you say. Um, the role of university presses, I think, is going to become more and more valuable. And for Ellie and I, we've been thinking about how Leeds Beckett could adopt that kind of strategy. But of course, that's a big endeavour. Definitely. And these are a lot of questions that many, many universities are kind of debating and discussing. And because the UKRI policy was only released that included this monographs clause back in early August, it's still very new. People don't know how it's actually going to really play out. And there's a lot of discussion between research staff at different institutions about what it might mean. But also, conversations back to UKRI asking for clarification on the on the policy. So whilst this is a policy that they published, we may still see several more iterations of it. <laughs> and, and we've been told that this policy is going to directly contribute to the REF policy, but that hasn't been published yet. So we can't know for sure how much tweaking is going to go on between now and then. So it's also true to say to anybody who's been who's been listening and is panicking about how they're finding the article processing charges for everything that they're doing because it's not UKRI funded, but they are hoping to submit it to the next ref that you don't have to just yet. But we think that the mood music, as I think Amy described it, is that this is the direction of travel and that it may well become the the policy for the next ref, but it's definitely the policy for any UKRI funded research Um, for articles from the 1st of April 2022 and for monographs from the 1st of January 2024. So when you think about the amount of time it takes to write a research monograph, 2024 is actually quite soon (laughs) for those UKRI funded researchers. Well, I think that's been a really interesting discussion and it's really great to hear academics' perspectives on open access. Quite often um, I'm looking at it from the perspective of somebody who isn't actually particularly publishing myself but is trying to help support infrastructure so it's really great and thank you so much for your input Sophia and and Chris it's been absolutely fantastic the Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday so don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode see you next week